0: Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. After the stupendous events that took place on Calvary, after the death, the judicial execution, the judicial murder of three men, one of whom is Christ, we understand that it becomes abundantly plain and clear that those who are closest to Christ are completely caught off guard uh, by what is about to happen, by what is about to happen, by what is about to happen. They don't come with a kind of plan, a kind of program for the day, a kind of agenda in which, well, by now this should be happening. Here are these women whose memory we celebrate today, the Mervé women, the brave ones, the ones who have followed Christ with a tenacity and a consistency and a stability that the men could well envy from the time that they were in Galilee. But they have not come for the resurrection. They have come to take care of the remains of a dead person whom they must assume, and we see them assuming, they are the myrrh-bearing women after all, that they must uh, perform those tasks which the Jews customarily perform on the bodies of those who have died and which therefore are going the way of all flesh. These bodies are dissolving back into the earth from which we were taken. But here, they do not meet a dead body which needs to be wrapped in spices and herbs, myrrh and aloes. They meet something quite different. They don't know what to make of that any more than Luke and Clopas, on their way to Emmaus, know what to make of it. So we can say that the first Christians, in those first days after the death of the Savior, would not have scored very high on a quiz about Christ and his death and the aftermath of that. We can't say that these people are sad because they have lost a political leader because no one makes any distinctions between religion and politics in this age. The pagans have an emperor in Rome who is, after all, a god and is worshipped in addition to having to pay taxes to him. And uh, the Jews are a theocracy. They believe that through the political ministries or just the ministries of the leadership of the Jewish nation, God acts in behalf of his chosen people. So those who say today that Christ is essentially a political rabbi are anachronistically reading back our own sense of things onto a time which could not have comprehended what we were talking about. In any event, what we see is this, that the hearts of all of those people, whether it's uh, Nicodemus who was the disciple by night, whether it was Joseph of Arimathea who came before Pilate, it says, boldly, with boldness, with courage, with guts, to ask for the body of the Savior and to put it into his own newly hewn out tomb that it didn't matter that their heads couldn't pass the quiz because God can work with us if our hearts are right. Given what they assumed to be the case, yes, they are wrong, they are mistaken, but given their assumptions that they must take care of their beloved leader even now after his, (coughs) as they see it, death, and the corruption of his remains, God can work with that. God can surprise those people with the Evangelion, the good news, the gospel, because their hearts are the soil that are already prepared to receive that word, to receive that reality. And it will fall into their hearts like the good seed that will bear fruit an hundredfold. So we must not be too uh, worried about people who make intellectual errors because they can be corrected and God will correct them provided that they come with a good heart. I remember a Russian theologian in the uh, 60s had one of his favorite sayings God can work with anything except ill-will. Bring a bad heart to the table, you leave unfit. But if you come with the assumption that on today's menu there is this, that, and the next thing, and you happily look forward to it, your heart is yearning for that, hungry for that, even if you find that you're wrong about the menu, the food that you end up getting. Ah, That is good food for you. It is a feast. We glory in the murmuring women. We are amazed. And yes, humanly speaking, they are affrighted. Today it says they are trembling. And yet, in spite of the fact that they are really scared, that they find all this really very scary, They are terribly disturbed with grief. Yet they do what their hearts tell them must be done. They do it not with ill will, but with good will. And God can always work with that. The lesson for us is so obvious. You and I can also be mistaken about things and about one another. We do make mistakes. Fine. The message is, cut all the slack it takes to get back up on the rails. You've fallen off the horse, get back on the horse, and move on. I always remember, of course we don't have TV, so I don't see all these Olympics, though back when we had one, we used to enjoy watching them. But I was in probably some hospital waiting room for someone somewhere, and it was years and years ago, you may remember those of us of a certain age, but it was the track women's track event and the American contender who was favored to win. If you remember, she fell. And uh, she fell down and, you know, landed well, caught herself with her hands so that she didn't injure herself. And she got right back up and she completed the race. And the commentators, whoever they were, whoever had bought the rights to the Olympics that year, said, now that is a real athlete, a real professional. Not to be deterred, not to sit around, you know, grabbing the sand and throwing it and and pounding the ground, but to get right back up and to keep moving. That's a good heart. That, That is at the center of the person, someone who knows what must be done and does it, even under those horrible conditions. Can you imagine being chosen to go to the Olympics? Uh, all those hours, hundreds, thousands of hours of training, and then to stumble and fall. Your career must seem to be quite over. The humiliation is incalculable. And yet the woman registered none of that on her face. She simply stood up and started running again. No matter how deterred you and I may seem in some relationship somewhere, whether it's on the job or in the family or in the neighborhood wherever it is, that's what we have to be as Christian people. Because we know this truth from the gospel. Because we know that we are called upon to be the yeast that will elevate the situation. We are called upon to be the salt of the earth. And we know what happens when salt loses its savor. It is good for nothing but to be discarded. This is why we always say, no matter how many IOUs we collect from one another as we go playing the bumper cars of life through the day, and so on and so forth, we have to get rid of them. Those IOUs are absolutely nothing. We think they are going to fuel some kind of emotional something or other. But they don't. They're destructive. They harm us. They are junk food. We let them go, we let them go, we let them go. We burned them up, we throw the ashes away, we move on. The myrrh-bearing women, well, you could say, huh, they didn't know what they were doing. Oh yes, they did, they knew perfectly well what they were doing. They were doing the right thing. And even though it was not called for, it turns out that they didn't use any of that myrrh for what they brought it for, They didn't have to be concerned about who would roll away the stone. It was already rolled away. You can be wrong about all of the details and be right about the very reason for which you are doing something. We need to cut each other all the slack we can. And we need to ask for slack, which means to apologize, to say forgive me, and so on and so forth. These are some, some of the great lessons that we can take out of these great Gospels that follow the Sunday of Pascha, and we can bring them right into our own home, into our own workplace, into our own neighborhood. We can bring them right into our own life. We can say to our heads, Heads, look at these things and change. Change the way you transact business with other people. Change your relations. Change your thinking. Dear God in heaven, how those holy myrrh-bearing women and St. Nicodemus and St. Joseph of Maria had to change their minds about a lot of things. How their thinking was altered radically and sometimes, as we saw on Thomas Sunday, with not a little difficulty. If I do not see this and that, I will not believe he proclaims, and then a little while later he say, My Lord and my God, <laughs> what a change. These are the Sundays that remind us that Christianity is all about change, which is why the church herself is so unchanging. Someone asked me once, why doesn't the liturgy ever change? We went to some Protestant services and they have a special minister who just takes care of coming up with new services every every Sunday. My gosh, what a task. I would go nuts. And I say, the church doesn't change so that we will. But you know that's true, isn't it? The church is changeless because you and I need very badly to change. Amen and amen.